Take a deep breath, take the higher road That's what they always say, as if they know the way They won't take it from me But don't ever doubt yourself, it's life ain't just a dream You make your own, so kick and scream The people will like with a never-ending force You never had the chance, so what you waiting for? The day has come, my friend, cause this is war Welcome to Nurses Out Loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is our January 30th last Q&A with the nurses for the month of January 2024. uh, Before we get started today, I want to encourage our listeners, if you have some questions or comments for the nurses about this show or any show or medical inquiries in general, or perhaps you want to share your own experiences with what you are seeing on the front lines of healthcare send us an email directly to nurses at americaoutloud.com and we will be featuring your questions and comments every Tuesday on a special Q&A episode with the nurses. We encourage all of you to engage in the battle, share what we are actually giving you here on Nurses Out Loud. If you think it's something that is in your audience or someone that you know is not getting this kind of news somewhere locally, You may want to share a link of what you are hearing here on Nurses Out Loud with them and get the information outside of the choir and into the ears of people that otherwise would not hear this kind of information, especially if they're in healthcare. Um, We have with us today Nurse Kimberly and a guest, Nurse David Wayne. He's going to be a guest of mine on a Friday show really soon. And the way that we met David was... It was Steve Kirsch has the Vaccine Safety Research Foundation, and he wanted to interview multiple nurses on a show to basically let people see that it's not just a few nurses, a handful of nurses that are out there as part of the resistance and part of the parallel system, but that there's masses of nurses. And we ended up having a four hour show with numerous nurses telling what they witnessed during the lockdowns and and all the mandates and David was one of those and nurse Jody Kimberly and I were also on there as well so I ended up wanting to interview him after I heard all that he had learned through his uh, journey as a nurse and that is going to be a really fun interview coming up and we have so much more that he we are aware that he is aware of now so we're really thankful to have you here on nurses out loud Q&A David thanks for being here Thank you, Michelle. I'm excited for the opportunity. Well, yeah, I'm excited to to have um, uh, you know a, a different voice on here, and we don't have enough male nurses. I'm telling you, so I <laughs> yeah uh, five you know, five percent something like that. Yeah, yeah, and and you guys are my favorite. So, <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> there's there's too me. much estrogen in nursing. <laughs> <laughs> he told me that he had originally gone into nursing to be life flight, but tell her where you yeah. ended up. Yeah, I uh, I was an EMT before I was in nursing school, and so my interest was always in emergency medicine. But I ended up in an inpatient psychiatric setting for about ten years. Nice, nice. Yeah. That's a very interesting part of nursing. A very stressful part of nursing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's it's different. 
Yeah, his interview was really interesting. I think it will be running um, the Friday after this show, the next following Friday. And you will be able to hear more about his story because he definitely was impacted negatively by the mandates like so many other wonderful nurses out there. And you can hear his whole story there and some other amazing things that he learned in on the inside of the psychiatric world. But today he actually has a passion about a particular topic. And it's one of the questions that we have as well. And it's addressing DEI. So David, why don't you tell the audience first, what is DEI? And you can let them hear the question that we have for the nurses today. Sure. DEI stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's something we've heard a lot of recently, uh, especially after uh, 2020 with the incident with George Floyd and everything that happened after that. That was when our hospital really started to have a corporate approach to DEI. They hired somebody to come in, uh, an independent auditor, basically, and come in and make recommendations for the hospital. But on my unit, inpatient psychiatry, DEI was on my radar for years before that. And that was because of um, trends with transgender patients that we were that we were seeing on our adolescent unit. When I started in that environment back in 2012, uh, we did not have any non-binary patients on our adolescent unit. And by the time I was uh, terminated over a COVID vaccine mandate in 2021, they had become uh, roughly the majority of the patients there. So uh, it it had a lot of us wondering what was going on and and talking and and that sort of thing. What did y'all conclude was the reason for the surge of transgender adolescence? Uh, I would say that there's no one reason, but there is a lot going on that might be playing a role in why we're seeing a surge. One is pure contagion. And this is a known phenomenon uh, with other body dysmorphias going back to the 1980s and 1990s. They would see outbreaks of eating disorders amongst female peer groups. It was always more prevalent in females than in males, and it would manifest within peer groups. Uh, there's a lot of that going on with the current um, non-binary and transgender identities as well. We see these things happening in peer groups, which is completely different than uh, the historical kind of um, expectations in psychiatry for uh, transgender people. Um, it used to be um, you would see traits and behaviors start to develop early in childhood and kind of um, progress through a person's life. And that person would eventually uh, um, be a transgender adult. And what we're seeing more recently is that um, it's it's teens in peer groups where they haven't had this kind of um, um, background pattern preceding their their sudden uh, transition. So um, I, have, I have actually heard that it is actually a popular thing among teenagers to be anything but binary. Yeah, it's it's trendy. It's trendy right now. And that's, you know, every you know how it is when you're a teenager and you want to be accepted. And that's kind of basically what everybody is is trending towards is um, the transgender move. I, I mean, it just, I think it just speaks volumes to the agenda that they're pushing in, in these schools. Yeah. Well, it is it's trendy trendy to be part of an oppressed group, and that goes um, straight back to the I ideology that's being taught in so many schools, kind of the um, postmodern postmodern Marxism uh, ideology that sees the 
world through a lens of oppressor and oppressed. And being non-binary is a way for kids to assume an oppressed identity uh, and then be part of um, um, be part of the in crowd because they're because they're oppressed. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. I've been homeschooling for 29 years. And when you're a person that's had six kids outside of the typical mainstream school situation, there's this presumption that these children that have been isolated, as they're called, into their homes versus inside of a school setting, that these kids must have really poor social skills. They have no way to interact normally within society. And they presume that these are very atypical children. And I would say, yeah, they may actually be pretty atypical because they're actually uh, looking like the group of kids that are functioning, not peer dependent because they've uh, grown up. They don't realize that those of us that have been homeschooling, we have a very huge support system. We have large social networks and they do have peer opportunities all the time. And they're in athletic programs, et cetera, just like everybody else is. But the thing that I've said to people to help them understand something is that you think that school is a normal experience, but actually nowhere in society do you actually ever hang out with people that are all the exact same age for 12 years of your life. Like, you know, for your full, hmm. full, full kindergarten year, you're only with five years olds. And then in your first grade, you're only with six year olds for eight to 10 hours of your day. And then you're home with your family again. But the real world with which they claim that homeschoolers aren't experiencing is actually multi-age, multi-generational, very diverse. You know, the real world is like that. And a homeschool kid is actually dealing with all ages at all times, not just their age group peers. And you'll see them much more compassionate to younger children, much more involved with younger children, that kind of thing, and um, attending to elderly people. I've noticed that when I try to confront some things with uh, teenage groups, when we see bad behaviors happening in social settings, it's almost like they don't want to ha engage with an adult like, OK, we can't all engage with an adult. That's an adult. We all have to be quiet suddenly. Whereas when you confront a, a group of homeschool kids, they'll, they'll start a whole dialogue and start communicating at, at, as if they're peers, as if the adult is like a peer to them, that they're, they're perfectly fine doing it. But the way I said it, when you, you reference the Marxist ideas that are specific to our public school world, is that in the homeschool, in the public school community, I... I think it's in basically in all school communities, there is such a Darwinian um, survival of the fittest kind of atmosphere there that if you're not pretty enough, smart enough, athletic enough, you name it, you've got to find some way to survive in that kind of environment. And if you don't fall into the typical areas of success, are you going to be the sleep around that that's how you succeed? Are you going to be the drug child that that's how you succeed? Are you going to be the class clown because nobody else notices you otherwise? And in, in my day, because I'm more than half of 100 and probably the oldest one here. Um, yeah, I think I am. I'm 56. And I think both of you are in your 40s. So I in our day, we still had a smoking area in our public school. Did y'all have a smoking mm. area in yours? We did not at mine, no. Yeah. How about you, Kimberly? Yeah, it's good. The, good, the girls room. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was my smoking area. <laughs> but no, we didn't have we didn't have like a uh, an established. Smoke, but we did have one when I got out into the workforce uh, and I started working. Yeah, they had like a smoking lounge, but not in my high school. Yeah. So, we did it anyway. school. so that was kind of the group of kids who were they had parental permission to smoke and they had an outdoor area that they could go into and we could all walk past their glass area and see all the smoking area kids. So everybody had their, you know, you 
had your group and I, I heard people, you know, kind of judge me for the way that I just exercise my opinion on the Darwinian environment mm -hmm. of the school, but it matches what you're saying, David, that, that as these movements of the oppressed being the popular thing, it's no surprise that it has elevated to kids with more pathology. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I also think there might be some, um, physiological considerations to look into too. Uh, we do know that there's a disproportionate number of kids who are on the autism spectrum that end up identifying as transgender or non-binary. Uh, that deserves more scrutiny that needs to be looked into. There's also problems with uh, endocrine disruptors. We know that um, uh, girls are hitting puberty sooner than they ever have before. And we know that testosterone levels and sperm counts in in men uh, have dropped precipitously over the last several decades and and that all those problems are getting worse. Uh, rates of autism are getting worse. Um, the situation with endocrine disruptors is getting worse. So there might also be some uh, physiological factors at play. And another one would be more and more teenagers are taking antidepressant medications. And those medications have an effect on uh, your libido and can also cause numbing and other issues that might uh, confuse a teenager who is trying to find their identity like you were talking about. It might, um, that's possibly something that could be linked to non-binary identities for some people. Uh, and it might be some combination of all these things, but um, uh, it, it needs to be looked into and it needs to be uh, investigated thoroughly because the the rates at which all these things are increasing are pretty alarming. Yeah. And uh, amazing insight. Kimberly, when he brought to my attention the impact of the SSRIs, I told him we're going to do a whole show just on that. And SSRI people that are out there listening who may not be medical are what we do um, often see being prescribed for people who are on it's the antidepressant class of drugs fall into that category. Most of them do. David has more expertise in that. And we are definitely going to delve deeper into that and expose what he knows from being on the inside for the last 10 years within the psychiatric um, community of what we are actually seeing. To, so for him to even expose how much he's seen this full, um, increase inside of the unit that he knows was not there. He's been there 10 years. He knows something has changed. So we'll delve yeah. into that deeper. And I know we went down that bunny trail momentarily as we were talking about DEI and we yeah. did explain what that is, but I think you had a question also from somebody that was a nurse out there about this topic. Yeah. So the question is, my hospital has been rolling out a DEI program and I'm not comfortable with all of it. How can I push back? And uh, this is this is a common concern in my experience because people kind of um, people kind of can keep their heads down and they uh, they don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to be labeled as bigoted. They don't want to. Um, they also don't want to treat their patients badly. They they want to take good care of their patients. So. Um, so it makes it uh, it makes it hard to navigate. Uh, I think it makes it particularly hard in in a psychiatric setting because uh, so much of what we're being told recently about transgenderism and that sort of thing is contradictory to decades and decades of, of research. Um, so I would say my first bit of advice would be to be open-minded and to not be dogmatic, uh, you know, 
evidence-based practice should be a core value of all of our nursing practice. So uh, be open-minded and and have a look at the evidence. I have found that an effective way to push back is just to ask questions. Um, so this is, I've had opportunities for that in um, uh, several staff meetings over the years. And it's a way to um, not be antagonistic to someone. And you're generally, in my opinion, not going to be changing the mind of the person who is kind of um, forwarding these sort of thoughts and ideas and agendas. Their mind is pretty much made up, but you can influence your coworkers who are maybe on the bubble and maybe not afraid. Uh, maybe they're afraid to speak up themselves. You can you can um, just by asking questions, you can really influence the people around you and maybe influence which direction things go on your on your unit. Um, so to give a specific example, we had a staff meeting once where we had a, a psychologist presenting to us about um, uh, racism and sexism that was built into the DSM. So the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It's kind of the Bible of psychiatry. And we were being told that uh, it, because it was a document written by old white men, it's going to be it's going to be biased. And yeah. so, uh, you know, one thing you could do is throw up your hand and say, like, I think that's I think that's ridiculous and take kind of a more uh, hostile stance to it. And and um, what's much more what's much more effective uh, is to ask something like, if the DSM is biased and bigoted because it was written by old white men, do you have a theory about why white men have the highest rates of suicide of any of any demographic? If it's if it's biased in their direction, then why are their outcomes the worst out of out of anyone? Wow, and that's a good one. Yeah, and yeah, that. Yeah, that way you're that way you're kind of um um poking holes, but not not in an antagonistic way. Sounds like <laughs> but I I completely agree with that approach. That's typically the approach I I typically try to take that first anyway, is is asking these thought provoking questions and planting seeds. Um you have to learn to meet people where they are, but if you're coming at them in an antagonistic way, you're not gonna get anywhere. In, and like David said, you're not, you're likely not going to change their mind, but you may be planting a seed for them or even just other people around you that hear you asking these thought provoking questions. And, and it makes them think a little bit more, you know, utilize those critical thinking skills that as nurses, we should all have. Um, and it, and if we start asking questions, you know, maybe it, it will inspire and encourage someone else uh, to raise their hand and say, yeah, you know, what, what about that? So I think the more that we speak out and we do it in a uh, logical, reasonable, reasonable, rational way, that we're going to be able to to continue to encourage others to do the same. And that's how, you know, civil discourse happens, which is something that doesn't really happen anymore in this country, which is very sad. It is very sad and the stakes are very high. So uh, it, it is really important to not just speak up, but speak up into a way that uh, is effective and and is influential. After speaking up, I had an absolute multitude of my coworkers come up to me and, and thank me for saying something because they were uncomfortable themselves and they were um, skeptical themselves and they were just glad that um, glad that somebody asked questions. Yeah, and it takes one. All it takes is one one strong voice, and you you would be surprised how many will stand up um, and come behind that. And this yeah, absolutely. 
four years, we definitely learned, we've heard so much more statistics out there telling us that when they look back at Nazi Germany and how in the world did this happen? How did we have people knowing something bad was going down and not speak up that the statistics, I think it was Jordan Peterson that revealed it, that I don't remember what the exact numbers were. Maybe one of you might, but that the majority of people are not going to speak up that they want to be told what to do. If they are told to turn in their neighbor for something, there's a high percentage of participation that is very likely going to happen. And you think, how could it be that way that you would turn in your neighbor that you know, because you might get a little bit more food or you're going to get some kind of kudos, but this, but there's something about the nature of humans that are more likely to be compliant or silent or not um, confront what they're witnessing, even though their eyes are telling them something bad is going on. Yeah, yeah absolutely. There's, there's definitely uh, parallels there. There are people active in the world right now that um, that uh, studied in depth the things that happened in Nazi Germany that that you know progressed along incrementally that led to the Holocaust happening and uh, part of that was the way they they influenced the public and and just kind of uh, just kind of nudged things in in that direction and we do need to have it on our we do need to have it on our radar uh, never again means something. And we are in, we are in historic times right now. And we never want to see this happen again. What did you have another thought you were going to say about that, Kimberly? Yeah, I, I mean, we are, it is happening, you know, I mean, it is happening right now. We're witnessing that right now. It's, it's just like Nazi Germany where they, they came and they divided, uh, they divide us into different groups and different classes and they start dehumanizing groups of people. And you see that, um, I don't care if you're on the right or the left, but you see, we're always going after each other and, and, and we're not looking at each other as human beings any longer. It's like, we're just labeling everybody. And, and it's, it's devastating what what has happened to society and to if you know history to to know that it is absolutely repeating itself right now i mean it's not something that i fear is coming it's here right no i I agree it is here and it's um it's not just uh that we dehumanize each other the the stakes are so high with this issue and and people have such strongly held beliefs on both sides Mm -hmm. uh it's kind of uh it's kind of similar to to abortion where people are very very entrenched and those entrenched beliefs can also be a uh, distraction that um, whether you're pro-life or pro-choice or um, whatever your beliefs are about gender affirming care on some level those things are a distraction from the fact that we have uh, uh, this basically a uniparty in Washington and globalists who uh, wants us fighting each other instead of noticing how we just had the uh, largest wealth transfer that's ever that's ever happened in our country over the last over the last couple of years and increasing incremental encroachments of authoritarianism and you know talk of things like vaccine passports and and uh, centralized digital currencies and banks and the incredible surveillance state we're under uh if we're if we're arguing about things like abortion and arguing about things like trans rights we're not paying attention to to the bigger the bigger picture of of these uh of these things that are encroaching into our lives that are going to create a world that is not the one we want to leave for our kids and our grandkids 
Yeah, and everybody thinks it's a right or left issue. And I've been saying for a really long time, it's an up or down issue. It, it's not anything left or right. It is definitely up and down. And they do, they have us divided and they have us fighting one another and not paying attention to what's happening um, you know, on high. And, and that's a problem. And we need to learn how to come together and find some common ground and stand together as Americans. And if we can't do that, I, I fear for what the future of this country is going to be. I mean, we're about to go on a civil war right now. So in Texas, I'll be heading to Texas just in time for the civil war. Can't wait. (laughs) It is crazy what's going on. And you know what? All three of us are not inside the system right now, but Mm -hmm. the nurses that are out there listening to us that are out in the system right now, as, as both of these people just testified, you've got to speak up. You're probably going to be being brought into Um, teaching sessions or group gatherings where they're going to play some kind of video that's supposed to indoctrinate you and propagandize you and tell you how it's going to be for now on inside your hospital system. And that's where you want to take the advice that David was just sharing with you to actually say something that is intelligent, to put a question out there. Um, I I mentioned the therapeutic conversation that you say, am I understanding you to say, like repeating back what they just said to them so that they hear the ridiculousness, perhaps, of what they may have said in a meeting that you're being told how things are going to go from here to four. And on the last nurse news analysis, we also addressed how, um, what, what what was it that we did, Kimberly, that was being told in the hospital system that if you were a patient, you oh, can't, yeah. Yeah. You can't even be, there's certain words that you can't say, or we won't even take care of you. Like if you're, you're calling me a, a, by my color or my sexual gender, or, or you must. Right. So it's like, if you, if potentially if you misgendered somebody, they could deny you care, which, you know, the, there's a whole other issue. We talked about Mtala and other issues. You can't just deny patients care. And when we touched on, you know, I've, I've had to care for child molesters, murderers, um, you know, all kinds of people. And, and we take care of people as nurses. That's what we do. Um, is we take care of people regardless of all this. So to say we wouldn't care for somebody because they potentially misgendered somebody is is just absurd to me. That's not medicine. That's not healthcare. Right. Well, we're going to have to cut to break. And before we do, don't forget to check out our online store at americaoutloud.shop where you can find all the products that we represent on our network at a discounted rate, including our Nurses Out Loud sponsor, ASEA. Check out their Redox Energy, Mind, and Mood Powdered Dietary Supplement Performance Packs. The variety pack includes 10 of the following. You can choose the citrus-flavored Redox Energy for sustained cellular energy. Carry a dose of I Can Do Anything With You. You can choose the berry-flavored Redox Mind for sustained cellular cognitive performance. Sharp Mind, Full Life. They also have tropical-flavored Redox Mood for sustained cellular calmness and good mood mood because when you feel strong, you are strong. And remember the ASEA products are all natural and the redox molecules are native to your body. You can purchase them separately as well. If you have a favorite, you want to add to your wellness plan, use promo code out loud to save 15% off your purchase. I'll catch you on the other side of this break. Stay with us. It's time and This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system becomes less efficient. 
For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Today's high-stress, on-the-go lifestyle makes it hard to stay heart-healthy. Lifestyle changes like exercise and diet are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support three aspects of heart health, cholesterol, blood pressure, and triglycerides, with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients. You would need to take 13 pills to get the same amount of nutrients in each gel pack. And these great tasting gels come in a small packet. Tear off the top, shoot it down, or mix it in water. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 25% off. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. When God, through his grace and mercy, gave us free will, the will of the people was to live freely. To that end, we fight for the liberty of all at a time when global tyranny threatens us as never before in mankind's history. This vision is manifest at AmericaOutloud.news, a site for all who cherish free will and freedom. Now is our time, my fellow Americans. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back to Nurses Out Loud. You're here with Q&A with the nurses, with Nurse Kimberly and Nurse Michelle, and our special guest, Nurse David Wayne, as well. So I'm going to bring up another thing that was interesting that we could all talk about before we go to the next question. It was a uh, post on, what do they call it now, X, Informed New Jersey Nurses posted this. I watched a TikTok from a nurse in Florida. She says the hospitals are filled to capacity, not COVID, flu, or RSV, but rather a mystery illness where the lungs are filled with fluid and edema, bilateral lower extremities. Naturally, this is causing people to have respiratory issues. We are seeing this also. This is what she's reporting. Take note, steroids do not work. Lasix helping some, but will potassium waste causing a host of other issues, cardiac arrhythmias to name one. What do y'all think about that? So, I mean, when, 
when I hear that, it doesn't to me, it, it doesn't sound like a mystery illness to me as much as it sounds like classic CHF or congestive heart failure. Those are some of the symptoms of that, um, where the, the heart is not pumping efficiently and you're, you're um, getting filled up with fluids. You're seeing that fluids in your lower extremities. So it doesn't, I don't think it's necessarily a mystery illness. It sounds very much like CHF to me. Um, but now whether or not that the, this high instance, incidence of, of CHF could be potentially related to the vaccines, that's, that would be my question is why are we seeing such a high incidence? And like, what are the, um, are there com are there comorbidities? What are the um, ages of the people that are, are kind of in there with this illness? And um, so I would look at that definitely, but it, it does sound to me like congestive heart failure. Um, typically they do use Lasix, which is a loop diuretic, um, and that can cause some significant issues hypokalemia being one, and that can typically lead to, um, often life, it can lead to life-threatening arrhythmias. So I mean, my big, that would be my biggest question is why are we seeing such a high incidence of this? Yeah. What's your take on that, David? I guess the first thing I think of is, uh, uh, when she says our hospitals are filled to capacity, um, in my neck of the woods here in the Midwest, hospitals have open beds and open rooms that can't be staffed because of the mm -hmm. because of the staffing crisis that's gotten uh, gotten way worse over the past couple of years because of how many people have left healthcare. Uh, there's a big hospital in in the next town up the road from me that just this week announced that they were going to be closing. So um, our healthcare system is certainly strained, but we're also at a point where we uh, don't have enough, don't have enough healthcare workers too. And so, um, hosp a hospital being at capacity, a lot of the times their capacity is determined by their staffing, not by the number of beds they have open. Exactly. Yeah. We've talked about that many times because they'll say that we're, we'll fill to capacity. Well, capacity could be, you know, because they only have two or three nurses and that that's the only, you know, patients that they could take, but they don't tell you that they just say filled to capacity, but what is that capacity and what is that, what is causing that? So that's a, a really valid point. Yeah. Audience out there, if you're hearing something like that about your local hospital, I challenge you to be a problem and start calling that hospital administration and saying, I'm hearing that you're filled to capacity. I need to know if there's a nursing shortage. I need to know what percentage of your staff are having to be uh, contracted. Are they actually local nurses that have always been here? Do you have a significant nursing shortage? What's going on? Like, find out and get the news paying attention to it. Because Absolutely. something's wrong here, Houston, if this is happening. And we have a massive nursing shortage, not because of your typical reasons that you think. We have a nursing shortage because your community hospitals forced the COVID-19 vaccine on staff. And you either have people that are compromised because of that vaccine or they left or they were fired. And you you should care to find out what happened to the most trusted profession in your community. If the nurses aren't there or they are in some kind of duress and, and we're the most trusted profession uh, for 20 years going, the community needs to rise up and say that you have a problem with that and give your hospital some problems. We've In Atlanta, we did have one that was closed down, but before it closed down, it was one of those hospitals that during the pandemic, during the mandates, not only forced their staff to all be vaccinated, you could not even be a vendor bringing supplies into that facility without being vaccinated. So I'm glad they went out of business. They need to learn their lessons and hopefully somebody that 
um, learn their lesson correctly, will buy that facility and employ staff appropriately and not have these kind of mandates happen again. We don't want this to ever happen again. So if you have to lose millions and the the hospital has to close, yes, it's bad for your community. But if that's what it takes to stop this from happening again, then we do want that to happen. I'm not sure if y'all agree with me on that sentiment. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Okay. So we have a question from Kelly saying that she had heard some bad reports about fluoroquinolone antibiotics being dangerous and would like to know what the nurses have to say about fluoroquinolones. So I'm going to ask y'all first before I tell my story, because I definitely have a story about fluoroquinolones. Do y'all have any um, past experience with using some of those drugs on patients and having issues? I haven't uh, directly worked with somebody that I'm uh, aware of that had an issue with fluoroquinolones. Is this the tendon rupture side yeah. effect? One of them, yes. yeah. Leviquin, um, Offloxacin, um, Cipro, Factive, and Avalox. Those are some of the names that are associated to it. But I know within psych, you're probably not giving many antibiotics on a regular basis. I'm sure somebody's not going to be having an acute um, bacterial infection of their bladder, probably while they're on the site floor. Um, well, we, we would actually get a fair number of um, UTIs causing psychiatric issues. So I uh, would right? see them sometimes with, see them sometimes with that. So um, you know that when you have m- mental confusion with elderly, uh, when my grandmother was going through this, they often said, oh, well, if she's having mental confusion, I'm sure it's because she probably has a UTI and that she would always be negative for a UTI. And in her case, it proved to be low sodium. And I asked them to do, I, I said, well, why don't we do, being that she's so restricted on her salt in the nursing home, why don't we check a metabolic and see if her sodium's okay? And it was dangerously low. And when they, they had to give her sodium over three days IV infusion, because if you put sodium back too quickly, you can actually cause a permanent damage yeah. on the brain. And after three days of the infusion, I, or maybe it was 48 hours, she was like a completely, I said, now this is my grandmother. This is the normal person that I knew was not mentally confused and it was all sodium. So did y'all see that as well on the psych floor? Mental confusion of younger people with sodium? Uh, Yeah, that, that is something we would, we would see on occasion. Yeah. Uh, Usually if um, the doctors are doing a, a good job screening people, they would recognize that this person's psychiatric issues, uh, have kind of a uh, an immediate medical driver instead of a instead of a psychiatric driver. Um, so we wouldn't see them too often, but yes, it, it would happen. How about you, Kimberly? Oh yeah, I mean we would see that in the ICU often um, with the sodium issues and and obviously with the UTI. But then you know, as David said, they the doctors have to be doing a good job of screening. So obviously, if we're looking at blood panels and, and things of that nature, we can um, I quickly identify what's what's driving that. But I think a lot of times, if you know, we get into that, oh, it's probably the UTI because it is so common. But we can't dismiss other potential causes. So it's really really important that we're looking at the bigger picture the mechanism of action for the mental confusion for the bacteria in the bladder is has anybody ever talked about that to either of you that you could speak to it why the elderly person does become confused with the uti i i do not understand the uh um physiology driving that I probably knew it at, like in nursing school and I've long since forgotten that because That's i know we, we talked about it quite often but i don't recall 
Yeah, we'll have to speak to that and find yeah. out why we'll have to look into elderly, it. Why, you know, is it because they're low hydrated? Mm -hmm. They're not drinking well enough? Why are the elderly getting the UTIs and why are they having mental confusion with that? So we may have to come back to that at another show. Um, but today, as far as this um, love, uh, this fluoroquinolone, it's notable because Dr. Peter McCullough had mentioned to um, the audience that with the China flu, China virus that we also know is walking pneumonia, which is not so new at all, um, that one of the drugs that this particular strain was going to be effectively treated with was the fluoroquinolone family. And, but doxycycline was also something that could treat it. And I was saying to my followers that if your doctor actually wants to prescribe a fluoroquinolone or it could be doxycycline, ask him for the doxycycline because there's so many bad um, reactions to people with fluoroquinolone. Now, I'm going to address that because um, the Kelly who asked that, I'm going to first tell y'all why it's prescribed. Um, Mayo Clinic says this, that levofloxacin is used to treat bacterial infections in many different parts of the body. It is also used to treat anthrax infection after inhalation exposure and is also used to treat and prevent plague, including pneumonic plague and septicemic plague. And after I read that, I was like, why did my doctors put me on that drug? But what happened to me, Kelly, was a really severe reaction. I had had a mass show up in my abdomen postoperatively, and it was probably a lymphatic mass, but it had about 50 milliliters of fluid in it. And it was blocking the flow of my uh, kidney down my ureter to my bladder. And it was about to kill my kidney because my kidney was about to explode because it was building up so much pressure. So they had to do an emergency stent to save my kidney. And when they were discharging me to go home, now, another interesting fact about the medical care failing me at that time, when I was hospitalized for that, that's just something interesting to know that can even happen to a nurse out there, is that when they, they did a CT aspiration of my 50cc mass, and it was very important to know what was inside that mass, but they accidentally threw it away and I never got to find out what it actually was. It was just a little, oops, sorry, we happened to throw away your pathology study. Uh -huh. And it would end up with like three years of blood disorders that I had that was kind of lymphoma-like that they said was probably associated to that mass. So I'd never got to solve it. And then the other error that happened to me in that hospitalization, it was a nightmare hospitalization, was I kept having no pain relief during my night shift nurse. And I decided to go with my gut to say, is this nurse taking my drugs? And so I stayed up and pretended asleep one night and sure enough, saw her use my IV drug in my bathroom and had to report it and found out that I was one of three nurse, three patients that reported that they thought their nurse was taking their drugs. And wow. that wow. was just a, you know, it does happen, but I actually was the nurse who had to report a nurse. So it was really sad. But when I went home, they sent me home with Levaquin. I'd never been put on it before. And they told me, well, you have a stent in your kidney. We really don't want you to end up with a kidney infection, a bacterial infection that could really get you in trouble. And what happened to me was the most severe abdominal pain I've ever had in my entire life. Like somebody was just stabbing me over and over again in my abdomen. And I had this neuropathic pain that went down my uh, left leg that would be almost like a sciatic pain, but it wasn't sciatic. And it went all the way down to my left big toe. And this would, this would, I would suffer with this for years, years to come. And I remember getting one of my kids to help me draw on the back of my leg with a Sharpie pen, the path of the pain. And, and then, then we photographed it. 
And I remember being gaslit by a Mayo Clinic doctor who said, um, you basically drew a nerve pattern on the back of your leg. I said, well, good for me because I just drew for you where my pain is. So can you help me with, with the pain in the, in the nerve pathway? I'm, I'm glad I'm a really good artist on drawing my pain, but, mm. but it was obnoxious, just one of those ridiculous things. But the most horrific thing that happened to me, uh, first time and only time ever in my life that I had a hallucination. And the hallucination was that I was in my shower, um, essentially dead on the floor, um, having slit my uh, wrist and bleeding while my little child was looking in through the glass, observing me and crying. And I'm telling you, it was a hallucination as if it really happened. And I went to my um, doctor who didn't really say much to me, but the pharmacist said, this is what we call a severe allergic reaction. It is documented that this happens with this particular drug, never take anything in the fluoroquinolone family again. But what is even more shocking is that when the FDA would come out about this particular drug, Kelly, um, the the warning was that this pres- these commonly prescribed antibiotics were very dangerous for people who had a particular diagnosis that I happen to have, which is called Ehlers-Danlo, which is a um, mm. connective tissue disorder. And it really wasn't well understood at this time. And this was probably 2009. And the other conditions are Marfan, which ha- is a unique um, skin not skin, but a smooth muscle connective tissue disorder as well. And one called Lowy Dietz syndrome as well. But people with those conditions can actually have an aneurysm dissection of their aorta. And, and of course that's lethal for your aorta to rip open. And I actually did have chest pain reported during that time. So all my doctors knew I had Ehlers-Danlos and I, I would go on for years of having vascular issues from there on that I never had before. I have um, arterial venous malformations all over my body. And I ended up with a stroke because of a blood clot going through them. So, so in my case, a fluoroquinolone proved nearly lethal for me. And according to Merck, the Merck manual, the severe adverse reactions can be unbelievable. I mean, it says GI irritation, but I mean, I just told you my incredible, terrible one, but central nervous system problems, paranoia, dizziness, nightmares, seizures, and peripheral neuropathy, which is what actually happened to me, my entire leg down to my toes, um, because of an antibiotic for a, let's just try and protect you from getting, I didn't even have an infection. It was just a protective measure that was taken. Do y'all have stories that are this shocking? Like this is a, another FDA approved drug that is that dangerous. Now, did, that's, I just, I, it, that's insane, but I'm just curious. Did they have your medical history? Yes. I mean, of I, I've okay. always been a complicated medical person. So I would always, as a nurse, make sure that they knew what was you. on my list. And I, because I'm such a perky little smiley, happy person, it always messed with them. Like there's no way this girl has this this many medical problems because I don't live like my diagnoses. And I I did experience the kind of judgment that comes with like Munchausen syndrome. Like, you know, nurses are not uncommon to be Munchausen syndrome patients. And I actually had a physician even do that to me. I said, no, now that's interesting that you would actually accuse me of something that I actually know what you're doing by saying that I have that when you're sitting there with the one inch folder with all the objective reports saying I have 20 lesions on my brain and you're, you're wondering if I am making this up. 
Please help that make sense. It was just unbelievable, the level of gaslighting, which brings me to that thing that I was telling you all that we've got to make sure everybody watches the movie, um, um, something for Maya. What was it? Oh, I take care of Maya. Oh, take care of Maya. Yeah. Every medical person out there listening, you must watch the docu. It's a three hour movie. You've got to see it. Every medical professional needs to see it. Really, everyone needs to see it because it could be you. It could be your story. And it's the story of a child that has complex, complicated. It was regional pain syndrome. What is it? Um, complex uh, CRPS, complex yeah. regional mm -hmm. pain syndrome. Yeah, you yep. probably took care of some people with that, didn't you, David? In the Not to my knowledge, no. Oh, really? Because there's such a, a component for them being very likely to be extremely depressed. Uh, and, I, and I remember when a psychiatrist, when they couldn't figure me out for a while, they said, you know, you, it looks like you may have a little bit of depression, Michelle. I said, you think? You think I am a little depressed being that I've been trying to help get diagnoses for two and a half years and almost every organ system is actually get, causing some problem. And I'm here for 15 days at Mayo. You think maybe I have a right. good be depressed because <laughs> obviously people with complicated medical syndromes do. But the story of Maya, if you've got to watch it because the medical system failed her, medically kidnapped her. And Kimberly, you've been involved in a case that involves something like that. You know, yeah, yeah. this is, and that's the, um, the MO, unfortunately, is if you push back, if you ask questions, um, or if you dare to ask for a second opinion, the hospital, the MO at the hospital now is to, um, to start that protocol and, and contact CPS and bring them in. We actually just got a phone call about another child, a young, uh, I can't remember the age of the child, um, I think maybe seven, that is uh, hospitalized with cancer. They wanted to start chemo and the mother just asked for a second opinion. She wasn't um, wanting to do chemo. She wanted to explore other alternative therapies. And instead of providing her with information or an, a second opinion or helping her to, to achieve that, they contacted CPS and then they put a restraining order on this mother that did not allow her to be at the hospital with her child just because she asked for a second opinion. So, and that's why I, I always try to, you know, tell people you've got to have an advocacy plan in place. You have to, you don't expect for something like this to happen, but it happens far too often. We, we just um, were advocating for little Autumn Shaw. We were able to get her out of the hospital successfully. Um, but it, it was the same type of scenario where, you know, they were the little girl goes in with an E. coli infection. Um, they they masked they tried to mass diurese the infection from her system. And what they did was they threw her into kidney failure. It was just a cascade of events from that from their medical interventions that just she her health just continued to decline until she was on a ventilator. Um, and we mm. we saw CPS get involved in that case as well. And I mean, this is this is their MO. It's very typical. So again, you've you've got to have an advocacy plan in place. That's excellent advice. David, do you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, uh, I was not um, shocked by Take Care of Maya. It was very disturbing, but um, I've unfortunately working in psychiatry, I have seen um, cases where people uh, uh, lose their rights and essentially I would say get kidnapped by the medical system. Uh, I can think of a, a man who had um, chronic paranoid schizophrenia and he would have auditory hallucinations. The way he would cope with them would be to uh, walk around outside and talk back to them. He knew how he was psychotic. He had never hurt himself. He had never been aggressive or threatened anyone 
else, but um, people in his community were disturbed because it was disconcerting to them to see this large man walking around who was clearly psychotic. And um, he ended he ended up, uh, uh, you know, having court ordered meds. And it, it wasn't because he was a threat to himself. It wasn't because he was a threat to anyone else. It, and he uh, really, really did not want to be on antipsychotic medication because of side effects he'd had in the past. But um, once you have lawyers yeah. and psychiatrists involved yeah. and judges involved, then those sort of things, unfortunately, uh, they do happen. And, and it's it's hard. There's so much gray area in psychiatry and um, lots of people in psychiatry who, who are there for good reasons and have good motives, but they also, they also have a lot of power and they don't always, they don't always get it right. Yeah. The, the story also entails how much the nurses, this, I can't remember how many days she was, was it 300 days she was held captive? Her, um, I don't remember how long it was that she was medically kidnapped, but it was a long time that some that all these powers that be normalize that a young girl, 10 years old, should be basically parented by the nurses who were on staff that day with a social worker who had a bad background, who sat in there with her that the little girl didn't like, which was a stranger who had an abuse past on record, not just accusation, had actually been charged. And yet the parents were being told that they were the abusers when they this little girl was being left alone with somebody who had actually had an abuser. I um, uh, can't remember what it was. You know, she was she was definitely charged with it to think that that's what's supposed to substitute for your mom. The little girl's isolation I mean, that what was normalized for her. She had no choices. She lost her autonomy. She lost her right to have her own mom and dad in her life, all the normal love and affection and the sad result of that movie, it, the story is the mother's suicide is what actually allowed that girl to finally get out of that hospital. The mother knew that it would be, they were going to put the mother in jail. They were, as long as the mother was still in the picture, they didn't trust that the dad wouldn't let the mother be in the child's life. And this poor mother ends up ending her own life to be able to help set her own daughter free. And, and because they, she was literally destroyed. This was a mother who was a nurse. And as I listened to the story, having had to fight for a child with a brain injury, it is, you are going to war with the medical system and they do not like it. Even when a nurse mother quotes medical data or tries to act like they know what they're doing, but this mother was a nurse and they're like, Oh, all these patients now think that they're Google doctors. Well, you know, if they can read, doctor, that means they can at least ask informed questions and you do at least owe a credible answer to somebody who's Google doctoring you. Would y'all agree? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Well, it happens all the time. It's so unfortunate. And I, I really, it really upsets me, but I tell people all the time, I'm like, do not let any nurse or doctor or healthcare provider, you know, gaslight you and bully you for, for just simply wanting to take an active role in your care. Like nobody knows your body the way that you know your body. Nobody knows your child the way that you know your child. So you you have to you have to stand up and fight back because nobody's going to advocate for your child the way you will. Um, but it, it really it bothers me. I see those memes on on like Facebook and and to see them in the nursing groups, it just just it's so cringy to me to see people doing that and gaslighting people for just wanting to do their own research. And half these doctors and nurses aren't doing the research. They just take, like, for example, with the jabs, 
Right. Those doctors and nurses weren't weren't researching anything. They were just taking whatever came down from the CDC or the FDA, and they were parroting it like it was gospel truth. That's what was happening. So, um, you know, they they don't like it when people do research because they then they know more than them, and and that's a sad truth. Right. They get to label other people. They get to see themselves as having the moral and intellectual high ground. And they slap these labels on all these people who have done their own research. You know, these these conspiracy theorists, when actually they're way better informed than than uh, the person doing the labeling in that situation. Uh, and I, I can certainly think back to early in my nursing career where that was me. I remember just out of nursing school in 2012, uh, having arguments with people on Facebook about vaccines where I was doing the whole, I was citing authority and, and all that sort, sort of thing. I mean, in the medical system, we're so hierarchical. We always appeal to authority because that's that's how the system works. And uh, in the time since then, it's it's been just absolutely eye-opening to to um to actually dig deep and to actually do your own research and and to see the ways that the healthcare authorities have failed the public over the years to protect them from predatory corporations and and that sort of thing. Right. Because yeah. even even four years ago, I was just four years ago, I was part of the problem and and recommending these vaccines blindly, you know, and and following all of the the guidelines. And I thought I was supposed to be recommending vaccines because I'm a nurse. That's what we do, right? But you know that the we, the only education that we get safe, effective, and necessary, and that's all. We don't get any uh, any type of in depth education on vaccines. So unless we're doing our own research, and many of us didn't. Um, you know that then we don't we don't know what we don't know and i've met so many more moms that were more educated than many nurses myself included informed but well, thank then, you david for coming and joining us today and until our next q a we'll do this again sounds good thank you right, thanks michelle thank you david well those were some great questions from the audience thank you all for sending them in it's another reminder that it you it is up to you to look out for your best interests do your research because even FDA approved drugs um, can do great harm and it, you don't need it to be uh, your story. We do not want it to be your story. So send in your questions. We would love to hear from you. We would also love to answer your questions here on Nurse Q&A. So send those in to nurses at americaoutloud.com and maybe your questions will be the next ones to show up on the show. And until next week. It's time and